0: Okay, well, let's make a start on uh, week seven out of nine, so uh, we're we're making good headway. I think if I was to do it again it would probably be five weeks, not nine, maybe four, <laughs> maybe two. Um, but thank you all for for coming and uh, you'll have noticed that there is a process in the in what we've been going through each week, and the reason why each of these topics is important is because, Christians through the survey have told us that they're important and they've said this is what's important to my faith and how I've managed to stay alive, how I've managed to keep my faith, why I haven't dropped out of fellowship. Um, we've been going through these topics week by week to see what is the cause of hope that that Christians who have suffered with depression or continue to suffer with depression um, what their cause of hope is. And last week we looked at the fact that God is changing us and he's actually bringing about change in our lives. It's change that is happening, that God is guaranteed to be happening, that he is causing to happen. So it's not a trust in ourselves, but it's a trust in what he's doing. And it's a change that he's guaranteed to keep happening through to the return of Jesus or when we die or um Uh, But it's a work that he started and he's guaranteed to keep doing. So we we have confidence in that. And through the weeks we've also seen that depression is very real. It, It has real consequences in people's lives. It has real triggers. Sometimes it can be hard to understand what those triggers were. Other times they're really straightforward. We'll remember in the first week some of the heartbreaking things that have happened in people's lives that have that have triggered their depression. Other times it's a, a culmination of of difficult times in people's lives, uh, a redundancy, uh, a death, uh, a, a relationship breakdown, and sometimes it's the it's the cumulative effect of these happening in, in a person's life that, that makes a, a really big a big impact. But I hope you are encouraged last week by knowing that God is at work in you. Now, I was struck this week by the hope, for, particularly for those people who don't know depression for themselves, and, and you remember me saying in the first week, God bless you if you don't know what depression is about for yourself. That is a, a beautiful thing, and uh, and God bless you for that. And I just had the sense, though, this week, that I hope, if you are in that category, as we've gone through this process, you and I and all of us haven't been overwhelmed by the sense of how easy it all is. If we just follow these steps, we will be um, getting better constantly, and and it, it's just a um, it's a walk in the park. It's it's fairly easy, and and. And I know some people in my life who who are very determined folks. They say, I'm going to lose weight, and they just go out and start losing weight. Uh, some people say, I'm going to give up coffee. They just give up coffee. I, I say, I'm going to give up coffee, and three months later, I'm still saying, I'll give up coffee. Um, so there are some people in life who, who have that decisive power. They can do things. And so I just didn't want you guys to go, okay, well, these easy steps, Chris is showing us all these beautiful bible verses and and it's just gonna be boom 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 and and by the end of the nine weeks we are all going to be healed right because because i find myself getting optimistic and really hopeful that as i go through these things i think oh lord if i get to the end of nine weeks and i and i'm not better i'm, I'm in real trouble um but i i just <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> depression's a great thing right uh <laughs> keeps you humble um, gets you crying in public um, <laughs> depressions real right and it doesn't it doesn't go away really quickly it has that physical effect in our brains that we talked about in previous weeks and you can be making really great headway but then find that your emotions are just a million miles away from where your brain is and your brain saying everything's fine and everything's good and and I'm concentrating on all the right thing but your 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 flesh your 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 depressed side is just sabotaging you it seems right and so you know i said last week that my mood was was pretty fragile and and so i just wanted to you know say that it's not easy right depression isn't easy it's a it's a a constant thing and it's a it's a slow overcoming and sometimes as regina pointed out it can be quick there there are times where we have big steps forward and and, um, and we, we're making a difference and, um, and, and things, are, things are improving but, but for most of us it's a slow chipping away at it just like the doctor would like me to do with my weight problem Right? It's a, if, I, if I'm going to tackle that it's going to be a determined chipping away at it not a really fast thing and, and so that is the case with, with depression for most of us But as we've seen, there is an abundance of hope. There is abundance, of cause to to have hope and to keep pushing on. And as we've seen in previous weeks, um, Jesus walks that journey with us and, and he helps us to overcome the things that we might really be struggling with in our mind, like guilt and shame we looked at in week five and how we deal with that. Now... The outline of this week is really quite simple and it's really brought about because the survey kept on throwing up these two verses again and again and again. People, So Christians with depression, what gave them cause for hope, one of the great causes was two verses that kept on being repeated again and again and again. So it was Jeremiah 29.11 and Romans 8.28. And because they kept on popping up, you just have to um, include them in in any form of discussion that we have. So we're going to have a look at um, each of these verses and then continue to look. So the theme of tonight is that God has good plans for us. He is a good God and he has good plans for us. And, And so we go back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14a, and I'll read that one. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. So I think this is just an amazingly encouraging passage, and we will break it down shortly. But, but throw it open to you guys, um, just to make sure that you're awake. Why is this passage, particularly verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope? Why is that such a source of comfort to us? Well, I mean, the
1: God of all creation thinks about me. That's <laughs> yep. pretty cool.
0: Yes, thinks yeah. about you. Yeah. As because an individual.
1: I'm
0: yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And
1: are yes. fearful about the future because
0: it's the unknown. Yep. Yeah, fearful <laughs> if about the future. Hand, then
1: I, if if I really, you know, take in these verses I can be at peace, yeah. knowing that God's already there in my future.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. God's in our future. Yeah,
1: this verse is truly my um stepping stone to Australia because uh, God gave me this scripture and I knew that there are a lot of things unknown to me, everything is unknown to me yeah. and I have a little child to to care for and all that but it really did give me a, a comfort to go ahead and it says I will give you peace and you pray then you will call upon me which is true because When things are hard and difficult, we tend, or I tend, to Mm. call on the Lord and and call me and go to pray to me and I will listen to you. Mm. And I I held on that. I claimed and I said, Lord, you said this, and this is really my stepping stone migration.
0: (laughs) Gave you the strength to come to Australia, into the great unknown.
1: Yeah, and and other uh, scriptures as well have um, confirmed this. Yeah. um,
0: being it is Australia talking about Australia.
1: So Fantastic. I just
0: went. Good on you. God wants to give us
1: peace, not evil as well. So yes. Um, he wants to give us a hope for the future as well. So, um, he's not only thinking about us; he's thinking of doing something good for us. Yeah. Yeah. does not thinking think, of oh, how am I going to punish this person today. He's yes. thinking, oh, I love this person. I want them to have hope. I want them to have peace. Mm. You know. He tries to draw us close to him so that we can find that.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Any, any other insights there? We could probably talk about it for a long time because the fact that the, the God who, who made everything does think about us and, and isn't, yeah, seeking to do us harm, but exactly the opposite is seeking for our peace. And he has good thoughts towards us to give us a future and a hope. Now I just want to pick out a couple of things in this verse. Jeremiah was speaking these verses to a people who are in captivity. Right? So that's really that's profound. These the people, the Israelites at this point in time, were in captivity, and they were in captivity because of their sin. So, in a sense, they're they're right in the midst of their punishment, they're right in the midst of their disciplinary process. And God is saying, but I want to bless you. And I want to bless you in such a way that you come out the other side of captivity. So it's an incredibly um, powerful thing that it's not spoken to people who are who are humming along in life and everything's good and they're all being blessed. And it's not a prosperity message. It is a right at your lowest moment when you are in captivity, um, God is wanting... A, a good future and a hope for you. And it shouldn't be lost on us who, um, who deal with depression that captivity is something we kind of understand. We understand what it is to be isolated, to be lonely, to be oppressed, to have this sense of being stuck all that um, oppression and bondage kind of side we we understand that that that's our our daily experience in some in some ways at some times so depression can hold us captive um, uh, just like those people who are in captivity and so this is a, a really great reminder for us that the God wants to give us a future and a hope but one of the questions I have we, we know from previous studies that that God desires us to be free, and and he delivers that freedom to us through Jesus Christ. But a question comes through when thinking about our future, why does God want us to be free? Why does he actually want that? And I think it's something that we as Christians sometimes get a bit back to front. Now this verse, Jeremiah 29, gives us some insight into why God wants us to be free. He wants us to be free simply because his thoughts towards us are good. He has thoughts of peace towards us. He desires to give us a future and a hope. So this is what freedom and liberty looks like. Having hope, having a future, having peace. Now we're going to see as we go through that this means at the outset that we can start to trust him for the big ticket items in our life, the things that are are overwhelming us. Sometimes it's work, sometimes it's our children. Um, not you, not you, Kara. Um, of course, Uh, and um, you know, sometimes it's church itself, it's, it's relationships, it's all sorts of things. These things can overwhelm us and we can trust in God for those things because his thoughts towards us are good. And he desires that we would know him, right? So we see this element in this passage that we are to talk to him, we're to cry out to him knowing that he will listen. That's a really comforting thing that we've looked at previously. He listens to our prayers and he hears us. We also see that we're to seek him. Now it says that we are to seek him with all our heart. And I I think that's simply because the world is going to throw up a million obstacles to us seeking God. There's just obstacles everywhere, whether it be things pressing on our time, whether it's Uh, our loyalties being divided whether it's just the world saying don't care about that stuff you know look after yourself um all sorts of things you'll be happier if you own a ferrari um you know this is the stuff that the world says if you own this you'll be happy and and so god says you're going to need to go after me with all your heart wholehearted because there are a thousand obstacles but the solution ultimately, what comes at the end of that passage, at the end of verse 14? What happens when we seek the Lord with all of our heart? He will be found and then we will be delivered from our captivity. Okay, so this is a fantastic thing. And you'll remember We've, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but it's um, just that little snapshot that King Nebuchadnezzar stood on the, the balcony overlooking his kingdom and he, and he was full in his heart of himself. Look what I have done. And God brought him down low. God humbled him. And it was only when Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven did his sanity return to him, did his right understanding return to him. And so it just fits in with that concept of of seeking with our whole heart and being restored from our captivity by just casting our attention to God. Now, verses 12 and 13 summarise the effect of God's thinking towards us. Intimacy with God and release from captivity – but verse 11, which is the really famous one that people memorise, states the cause of, um, of why God thinks these things towards us. And as Christians, I think we just need to dwell on that and not be too eager to go pushing on too fast, but to dwell on the fact that God wants the best for us. It's an it's an amazingly comforting thought. Now, later on in the book of Jeremiah, a couple of chapters after 29, um, we get to chapter 31, 13 to 14. Would somebody like to read that for us? I will. Yep. Um, so, did you
1: say...
0: 31, 13 to 14. Yep
1: then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. Thanks. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord.
0: Hmm. So we get this amazing um prophecy of jeremiah in in chapter 29 about god's thoughts towards his people being good and wanting uh for their benefit and their blessing and then in in chapter 31 we see the result also prophesied the result of being led out of your captivity um, and what a beautiful picture it is rejoicing in dance the unity of old and young um, worshiping together our mourning turned to joy, the comfort of the people, rejoicing rather than sorrow. Satisfaction in God, satisfaction in our soul. And, and we looked at the, the Psalms that talked about how when things are right with your soul, you can just about put up with anything. When things are going wrong in your heart, nothing satisfies. It's, nothing satisfies and, and, and life itself is on edge. So even, even if life is incredibly full of blessing, even if everything's going right, if the soul is fractured, then life itself is tenuous. And that's, that's a really important uh, thing for us to remember. But what it looks like when we come out of captivity is sorrow turning to gladness and freedom and joy and comfort, uh, rejoicing, blessing, satisfaction in God these fantastic things. Now, we understand that this passage is also a prophecy about what Jesus does in the life of people, that he being the author and perfecter of our faith, um, the prince of peace, he gives us freedom and sets us free from sin. So we have this rescue in Jesus that we also see um, in in the people of Israel. Now the second verse that people memorised and kept on throwing up in this uh, survey uh, that Kara did during school was Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And you know this is this is an amazing verse. It's a in some ways, a difficult verse because it opens up the whole area of the way God works His sovereign power in this world. So, and so that's going to be that can lead into some um, some difficult areas. But we see this verse work out in two really profound ways in our life, and the first is that God has oversight and control of all of the activities that are going to happen around us and to us. And he allows or doesn't allow the events of our lives. And this is a great comfort to us because as those who are loved by God, we know that what comes our way has been allowed to come our way by God. Now, as I say, this is a really... Difficult teaching in some ways. When I think about my own past, I, I, I'm I find it abhorrent to think that God was involved in in the abuse of my past. But I also think that I wasn't a Christian. I think that what happened to me also affects other people. So what God has done sovereignly in my life um, has served a purpose in my character formation, but it's also affected people around me. It, and God... So when we look at the events of our life, it's not just about us, right? <laughs> you know, we can keep focusing on me and say, well, God, that's just not fair. But, but what if, what if, as uh, Corey Ten Boone said when she was in a concentration camp, that because she was in a concentration camp, because of this terrible thing, people got to hear the gospel that otherwise never would have heard about hope in Jesus. Now, you have to really believe that in your heart for that to make a difference. That is not something that can be rolled out in a trite way. You know, someone who's going through pain... Oh uh, yeah, yeah, she'll be right, you know, God loves you, you know. It's not about that. It's about having the comfort in your own heart to know that God is involved in this. And and we as Christians can have that comfort. And as we say, it's based in his character that we can have that comfort. So now I just have a a, a little example from my past about this. Uh I had several stressful jobs, (laughs) whether they were stressful or whether I was just stressed might remain to be seen, but God can tell me that later. But I had suffered from years of being stressed and I was depressed and I had great, well, I had high paying jobs and I was stressed and I wasn't getting better. And then I had a couple of periods of redundancy that went on for months and during those times, you just start to recover, right? You're not putting up with the daily stress of, of work and, and, and those trials that you have at work and stressful positions and, and all of those things. And God was teaching me to trust in him during those times and, and sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't and I was panicking and so forth. But right at the right time, God gave me a job. Was it a job I would have chosen? Never. It was less than half of the money that I had been on. In fact, it was about a third of the money I was been on I had been on. I was a one-person show working a very hot machine in a very hot factory. It was hard labor, but from day one I loved it. I loved it. I knew I wasn't going to be building an extension on the house on the back of it. But I could put my headphones on and I could listen to sermons, I could listen to my music, I could meditate upon things. No one was pressuring me. No one. I was just running my own race with just enough income to help. Um, and and I, I never would have chosen that. But God in that time gave me a year of my brain healing, a year of peace after 19 years of not having it. So it was a real act of God's love and sovereignty for me uh, that, that I had that job. So, So trusting in God isn't just going, oh yeah, the universe will look after everything, as we talked about in a previous week. It is trusting the God who is sovereign and in control of everything. So the other great facet of this verse, Romans 8.28, and I'll read it again, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. There's also great comfort in this because we see God's ability to redeem everything, to make something good come out of something diabolical. And we have diabolical things happen in our lives we really do the, the world remember wasn't made like this God made the world good our sin our pride, our stubbornness our greed to have more stuff, to have more property, to to have empires and kingdoms all those things have brought sin and, and terrible things into the world God didn't design it like that so so bad things will happen to us, bad things will happen around us, but God has the ability to go, you know what Chris, that was terrible. That was terrible, but I am going to spin that into gold somehow in the in the rest of your life and he does it in a way that we're not you and I just can't understand and can't get. But God works through our weaknesses. And it's a very very comforting thing, isn't it, that even if even if um, we can't resign ourselves to God being in control of everything and allowing these things to happen to us. And some Christians really struggle with that. They say, God cannot be involved in that. And I I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that view. But even if we believe that, then the redemptive power of God just kicks in and says, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make this worth it. I'm going to redeem it. It's going to be better than you could imagine because I'm going to do it. So Chuck Smith said in this great quote, you know, I have found such rest and comfort in this verse when I am faced as I am often faced with situations that I can't understand, disappointments, setbacks, things that I just don't understand and I'm prone to be concerned or worried or gut upset and then this verse will come to mind. I have rested in this verse over and over and over again. Now, as I have told you, you are not going to always understand your circumstances. There are going to be many things that will happen to you of which, though you do your best, you are not going to be able to understand or figure out. And when you come against that which you can't understand, it is important that you have certain foundations that you do understand and you fall back on the foundations. What do I understand? I understand that God loves me. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. I understand that God is wiser than I am. I understand that God is in control of all the circumstances that surround my life. Thus, anything that happens to me only happens to me because God has allowed it to happen to me. It could not happen to me unless God did allow it to happen to me. And God loves me and is working out what is best for me. Thus, I can rest in the most uncomfortable places. I rest in faith that God is even going to use this for my good and his glory. So those are two wonderful verses, I think you'll agree, and I, I commend them to you to, to, to remember them and press in on them and, 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 and trust in God because of them. But I really want to exhort you to rest in his love. I find in myself, when I think about God's goodness, I find in myself quickly thinking, how should I respond? What should I do? And maybe because I've been in the church for a long while, I think, what does God want me to do? He's done this for me. What do I do for him? I hope you understand I'm being a bit ironic or or cynical when I say that because because that instantly pangs of me trying to pay him back, right? I'm going to try to pay him back rather than receive his grace and it's his grace that has saved me. Okay, but we we often have that urge. So he's done this, now, now what do I have to do? And it was hard for me as I prepared this study to just stay... Right in this place of thinking, what are his plans for me? What does he think about me? What's my position in him? Not, what do I have to do about it? And rush on to that, because that's my urge. And I think it's a really important principle that God wants to fill us up with his love so that we can go out so that we can serve so that we can live the lives that he would have us live he doesn't say go out and live it before you've been filled by me now we don't always feel filled by his love so there's an element of faith in it for certain but we will find him filling us with his love as we love others now The concept came to my mind, and and you will know it, I'm sure, if you've grown up in the church the concept that we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. This is accurate in the same way that the letter F follows the letter A. F follows A we are saved to serve is a bit like saying that the letter F follows A well clearly it does but it's not what you want to know when I say why are we saved because it's not the very first thing it's not the next thing it's not the primary reason why we are saved so we're going to look at some fantastic verses that tell us why we are saved now as a starting point here, we know Mary, the story of Mary and Martha with Jesus. One sat at his feet to listen and the other one went about a fuss and serving. And Martha says, Jesus, you know, get Mary to come and help me because I'm serving so much. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better to sit at my feet and to listen to to abide in me so it's clear that jesus doesn't want us just to launch off into service he wants us to abide in him first to live with him okay what's the primary reason why god has saved us so let's go back again to why god saved his people in in deuteronomy 7 would somebody like to read that for us? Deuteronomy seven, six through to eight.
1: Yeah. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the
0: hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Okay. So we know that this verse applies to us because we know in Romans it talks about us being the children of God. We are the children of Abraham by faith. And so we know these these verses also pertain to us. But God says, I chose you as a people for myself so that you'd be a special treasure. And I set my love on you, even though you were insignificant, simply because I love you. He also keeps his promises. And he said, I promised your forefathers that I would deliver you. So I'm going to fulfill that promise. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. Captivity. So the very act of saving us is completely motivated by God's love for us and his desire for us to be in relationship with him, knowing that a people who are in relationship with him will give him glory. So he basically says, just because I'm going to love you, that's going to give me glory in the world. You you love me back, we'll abide together, I'll be your God, you be my people. And that will bring me glory in the world. Now, obviously, this is a heart thing. It's not about joining a building. It's not about joining a church or an organisation. It's about being joined with Jesus Christ into his death and risen with him in his resurrection. But why Why is this relevant to our study? This sense of just being loved as God as god loves us well i I found myself thinking about all the times i say to myself i can't do something as a as a sufferer of depression and i and i know what's good for me you know if i would only lose some weight if i would only start exercising if i would only get into better sleep habits if i um if i start serving if i go to church every week if i read my bible every day if i get up early if i do all of these things my life will be turned around. And even as I say it, I find myself getting depressed. I can't do it. I simply can't do it. And so I just want to relieve you of the burden of not being able to do it. Rest in his love. Rest. So when you are being burdened by all the things that you know you should do but you can't do rest in his love knowing that his first and primary purpose in saving you was simply to love you right as an expression of his love towards you so rest in that and then amazing things starts to happen when i when i rest and i start and okay so this is a deliberate thing that's happening in our mind Okay, I'm, I'm stressing, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm not doing the things I should. Lord, I know you love me. I know you love me. And you don't want me burdened by this, by all the things I should do. You know what I can do and I can't do. And with your strength, I will begin to do those things. But right now I can't. And, and Lord, you love me. You love me still. You don't, you're not waiting for me to be obedient to love me. You loved me before I was obedient. You loved me before I was a child of yours. And you love me still. He just desires to fill us up, to receive from him by faith. And then we will be able. So this isn't an excuse um, just to go about living your life the way you ever want to live it. Here's our Lord. He has desires for you for your good, and when we walk in those desires, then we will be blessed, and he will be glorified. I'm just reminding you, though, of the source of your power to do the things that you need to do. But rest comes first. So part of that resting is the remembering, right? And the beauty of this resting and remembering is that we can do it over a cup of coffee we can do it before our feet hit the ground when we get out of bed in the morning we can do it at our desk at work we can rest and remember Lord I feel my anxiety going through the roof it's, I'm peaking I'm, if, I, if I don't get up and walk away I'm just going to cry at my desk okay Lord you are good, you've got good plans for me, you love me, you love me, help me to rest in that, help me to trust you. So either in a short period of time, and it might be that we need to remind ourselves of that daily for months and weeks and years, but we enter into his rest by faith and it makes a difference in our life. Just to finally put, a, put a, uh, an exclamation point on this being safe to serve concept. God does not need more servants. Right? Jesus told Pilate, I can command 12 legions of angels to come and save me. God does not need to raise up more servants. Well, what can we do for God anyway? He says, you, as Christians, you completely operate in my power. So, he doesn't need more servants. He's not saving us so that we can serve him. Elsewhere, he says that if, if my disciples don't worship me and praise me, even the stones will do it. So, God doesn't need people to worship him. He's not, he's not saying, oh, I'm bored, you know, I need my ego patted. You know, I'm going to create a few more Christians to pat my faltering ego stones can do it if he wants them to he's not God's not lacking in any way so and, and we've seen magnificent stories from around the world right where, where God can go into the dreams of people in the Middle East he can interrupt people's lives um, to introduce himself to them way out and apart from Christians now normally he involves Christians somewhere in the process and I think that's for our blessing not for his blessing as he did with Paul, he, he can go directly to, to Paul and, and teach and correct. And, and so he can do that if he wants to. But he wants to express his love to us. So we're going to read these two passages in Ephesians. And if somebody would like to read Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, and then somebody else can read Ephesians three fourteen to 19. But God, who is rich in mercy, because
1: of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. For the reason I bow my knees to the God Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ, for from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of god
0: okay so (laughs) Paul the Apostle can be so frustrating, can't he? He has these massively long sentences. He gets so um, enraptured by his thoughts that he just keeps going and going and building and building. But, and one of the difficulties for us is knowing where to stop and how do you dissect all this. So, so please forgive me for, for hacking this ab- hacking this about a bit. But we see that God's love is expressed inextricably in Jesus through the cross, even when we were hopelessly dead in our trespasses and sins. So Christ died for us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But he tells us in that first passage very clearly what his motivation was. In verse 7, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. This is why he did it. To show the exceeding riches of his grace towards us. Okay, this is really important. It, it's not for lots of reasons that come might come to mind. That the stuff I've got to do that he wants a huge church or a powerhouse or anything like that. He just wanted us, he wanted to demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. An amazing principle he prays in the second passage there that we might be strengthened by the spirit that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that being established in love really important established in love this is the foundation that we're established in God's love we may be able to comprehend the incomprehensible the sheer magnitude of Jesus's love for us so what a, what a way to say it, that you can basically spend your entire life working out what the width and length and depth and height of Jesus' love is for you. You can explore that all of your life. And interestingly enough, you need the strength of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do it. Okay, so we see the outworking of the Spirit in our lives. Now, why? Why again? So, his love, and then we can explore his love, and then what's the motivation for that? Is it so that we can run out and serve? No. What's the end of verse 18? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. This should be an incredible comfort to us as Christians that we'd be filled with the fullness of God. God wants to dwell with us in unity and in love. What an incredible thing it is to be filled with the fullness of God. Now we're going to see in a moment, and Ben preached on it the weekend, was that this fills us with great rejoicing that God would love us so much that we can spend our entire lives just trying to, exhaust his love trying to dig into it trying to explore it further you know and we saw the the nature of David to go dancing through the streets in front of the ark because of God's um, grace to his people and we also saw his wife's bitterness towards David for doing that now I want to touch on that in a second but before we leave this in a These two verses, uh, chapters in uh, Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, we see, first of all, the extraordinary love of God as demonstrated through Christ. And then in Ephesians 3, we see that the cross, or that Christ as as a person in space and time, was not a single demonstration of God's love towards us, but rather... God is going to continue pouring out his love upon us. Christ wasn't a one-off demonstration of God's love, but rather a show that God desires intimacy with us. And well might we leap and dance with joy. Now, the reason why I mentioned David dancing before the ark is because God has a similar sense of rejoicing over us. And we looked at that verse in Zephaniah 3.17 uh, a couple of weeks ago. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What an amazing concept that God rejoices over us. But the thing that appeared to me with my battle with depression has been that I can reject his rejoicing he he can be saying chris i rejoice over you and i can be saying you're mad it's insane right but in my sorrow over my life i can say well god what what are you missing so i can reject his rejoicing over me and that does a profound thing to our thinking if if we do or don't accept that now of course we who are we we? he is perfect he's not deranged in rejoicing over us he rejoices over us simply because he is full of love and he loves you and i and he wants to demonstrate his love to us so if our thoughts don't align with his if you look at your life and you go, well, there's nothing, re- nothing worth rejoicing about in my life. Nothing to see here, Lord. Now, I know that you do, because the Bible says you do, but quite frankly, I think you're a bit mad. I know my life's not like that. Well, our thoughts need to align with his thoughts. We need to change our mindset. And guess what happens? we start coming out of our captivity. The God of the universe loves me. He's happy with me. And it makes a difference because what it, what it means is, like tonight, our feelings and our mind can start going, okay, we're not cooperating, but you will find the ability to push on. You'll find the ability to find hope, even though your feelings might be uh, your brain can start saying, okay, feelings, I'm going to bring you into line. The truth is going to change how you're feeling. So let us not judge God when he says he has He rejoices over us. Okay. So we see lots of comments from the survey there. Maybe we don't. About God's plans for us. So, so many people are saying, I think that no matter how difficult life gets, we live for an eternal hope. That will always push me to look beyond these moments. All of this will fade away and God's promises that a life for Jesus is worth it, no matter the cost. OK, I didn't doubt the existence of God, but I was angry with him, says another Christian. And I doubted that he had a good plan for my life. That's really honest, right? And God never asks us to be dishonest. <laughs> he knows what we're thinking anyway. And often we, we benefit by saying honestly what's on our heart and our mind before God. Another person says, even when severely depressed, I still believe that God loved me and had a plan for my life. So this is the real cause for hope for us that God has a plan and, and he is good now I want to encourage you in this principle of living and resting in a simple life so we've discussed in in previous weeks that that Satan will throw in our face all kinds of condemnation he'll say oh Chris by now you should be a missionary You know, by now you should be a minister. You know, why aren't you doing great exploits for me? You know, Satan will say this. Chris, why, you know, 10 people came to your Bible study group. If you were more godly, it would be 50. You know, Satan chucks that stuff at you all the time about what you're not doing. But this isn't God. It's Satan. And the way you can know that it's Satan is that Satan condemns... And Jesus exhorts. Now, sometimes the truth might be, Chris, how about you spend some time with me this morning, reading my word? That's an exhortation by Jesus Christ. Satan says, you're hopeless because you didn't spend time with God this morning. You know, it's a simple method. Condemnation, exhortation. Right? Satan aims to condemn us. Okay, so... But in essence, we are called to a simple life. Now, once again, I I think one of the best things we're going to be talking next week about the acts of service, uh, the good works, and walking in those that God has called us to, including for the person who is depressed. Um, But I think a very good measure is simply, okay, where is God leading you? What gifts has he given you? What talents has he given you? Use them. You know, Jesus taught talents. Don't bury them in the ground. Paul talked about gifts. He didn't say sit back and wait for some amazing calling on your life. Interestingly enough, I think this is kind of a hyper-Calvinistic thing that's come out about us needing a calling. Now, don't get me wrong... God calls people to do things for him at certain times. It's really important that he does, and it's important that the person knows that God is really clearly calling. But if we sit back and go, "Okay, Lord, you show me what I'm meant to be doing, and I'm going to wait until you show me. That's not faith. That is God giving you gifts and talents, and you burying them in the ground, until he returns and tells you what to do with them. And when he returns, you know from the parable, he's going to return and say, Chris, why didn't you just do what you were gifted to do? You had a house. Why weren't you hospitable with it? You have joy in your heart. Why don't you make people cheerful at work? You know the word. Why didn't you encourage someone with it? It's not any great acts of, service or but it's what you've got so god isn't i don't think god is saying oh you you just sit back and wait for me to give some great calling on your life and and the people you'll know from their stories if you listen the people who were called and the people who have had a really clear sense of god's calling weren't sitting back and waiting they were using the gifts they had and then out of that god said let's go here you know, and and some and something bigger happened, but the reason why I'm talking about service now, and I'm talking about it in this that way, is because there's a simplicity about it. There's a restfulness about it. It's not a restlessness that we've got to be stirred up into into, you know, and, and be all excited about things. It's what have you given me, Lord? How can I serve you with what I've got? What need have you put in front of me that I can respond to in, in faith and love and stepping into that? So there's this beautiful simplicity that we are called to. So let's go to 1 Timothy 2 and and see how this, how this works. Would somebody like to read that for us? 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 through 2, 5, please.
1: Therefore I sought first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, the kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time.
0: Okay, so we see in the first verse the exhortation to pray, um, give our supplications, our intercessions for people, our thanks for all men. And then it talks about kings and those who are in authority over us. But we give those prayers to God that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. I think at various times the church has taught that a good and quiet life isn't enough. You know, a quiet and godly life isn't sufficient. That we're all meant to be missionaries or or doctors or um, we're meant to be out saving the world. But it starts with prayer and there's a cause and effect here. It's verse 1 here that leads to verse 2, that by giving up everything to God, by coming to him and giving over the things that are bothering us, by giving our prayer requests to him, by interceding for people, by thanking God for people, this enables us to live the peaceful life of verse 2. Because I don't know about you, if you carry all those burdens, you're not going to have a peaceful life. You're going to have an anxious life. You know, and every day I get more burdens. Every day I've got to get rid of more burdens, because otherwise they will just weigh weigh me down. So how do we have a peaceful life living in godliness and reverence? We do that through the prayer life that's in verse 1 and that is good and acceptable in the sight of God. I think it's really important just living a quiet godly life. Now once again, this is not an exhortation just to live your life however you want to live it in in indulgence or you know saving for the next sports car or whatever it is. Godliness, which was at the center of this in verse 2, refutes that. It refutes that just living a fleshly whatever you want to do kind of life. But the sense in this passage is that if you live this godly, peaceful life, what happens? Verse 4. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's this linking of our Peaceful, godly, reverent lives with people coming to the truth. People knowing Jesus. Okay, so that's a really important link there. And it also shows that this peaceful, reverent, godly life is highly transportable. It goes wherever God calls you to go. Peace is always at your center. If God is, if God says I want you and and uh, you know, and I think about Ben and Laura, I want you to go to Australia. That is going to be a very stressful thing, and for you too, Sally. That is going to be very stressful if if peace is not at the center of it. If God is not at the center of it, then it's going to be a very stressful journey, isn't it? To uproot your family and move country. So. A peaceful, godly, reverent life is useful for meeting the neighbour as well as moving countries. It can be going out onto the mission field or it can be staying at home. It can be speaking a word of encouragement or it can be leading a crusade. But peace is at the centre. It's a very important principle. Now, Psalm 33 is up there, and it's, uh, or is it? Yes. And Sarah, it's in in its entirety, but we're not going to go through it all. I just wanted to point out a couple of a couple of things about it which are, are pertinent to us. So, the, then the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we've seen in Jeremiah 29 and Romans 28. That comfort comes from knowing that God is sovereign. He's in control. And he also desires the best for us. Now, that's a really powerful combination, isn't it? Right? So, if God was not full of love, he could be in control of everything in the universe and want to make our lives a misery. Right? We can't control who God is, thankfully God is a God full of love. So he exerts his sovereign control by doing what is best for him best for us and gives glory to him. And it's an amazing combination that gives peace and comfort to us. Now in verse in Psalm thirty three um, verse five we see this little thing that says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now, this whole chapter is is about God's sovereignty. It talks about how he's made the universe, he's made the heavens, um, he has control over the waters. and But in the middle, we get this, the earth is full of his goodness. And I just wanted to remind you, because often... When I'm feeling depressed and I'm sure it's the same with you we feel there is nothing good there is nothing good in the world there's nothing good in me there's nothing good in the world and everything is doomed and everything is bad and the trajectory of everything's bad and it's not right it's not right so we've already seen that God loves us and he rejoices over us but he also says that the earth is full of his goodness. Now, we might need to be disciplined to look for that. We might need to break our thinking, our our hopelessness and our despair and say, okay, what is good? And count our blessings, quite literally. We can say, well, that rain on my face today was lovely. Thank you for sending that wind that cooled the earth. and." and giving us a cooler afternoon, and and uh, thank you for the shelter over my head, and, and the food that I eat, and, and Lord, when I look outside, I, I see this marvellous creation of yours, which just blows me away, the, the intricacy of everything, the majesty of everything, whether it's big on a universal scale, the unconquerable depths of hundreds of millions of light years that they talk about, to the... Minuscule that's going on inside our cells and the DNA that's happening, and just the beauty of all of that, and the way it all works. These are all just amazing things. And, and I don't know uh, what you think about it, but I, I get each month these creation magazines and I read them cover to cover. I love them. I, I'm though no, I failed science very badly at school really, really badly, ashamedly badly I failed science at school. And um and uh but I I really love these magazines. It tells me about butterflies and zebras and 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 how incredibly they're made and how these animals that are meant to be dumb are actually really bright and how the world and the things that we that science is continuing to discover just um, demonstrate the majesty of God and and they're bewildering to science you know this week we've seen things in our news with new planets and and black holes that are suddenly flashing and how suddenly science goes hang on that doesn't fit with anything we've thought up until now and and these things are just in these magazines I just absolutely love them I commend them to you they're a good read and if you want to borrow them please they just sit next to my bed just gathering dust so um so please the world is full of his goodness that's the point and we just need sometimes to go okay uh, you know I'll break my thinking and I'll look at the pretty pictures or with God's strength I'll actually read the article only thinking that this week I found it really hard to read really hard to concentrate and um but but we can be reminded of God's goodness to us now I just want to say in the light of that, that the 200 years after Darwin, it's interesting that the Bible still says that God made everything. And it's really important because, well not only do we believe it's the truth, but, but the sovereignty of God is exerted over all of creation It's exerted over the way the universe runs, the way the earth runs. It's God's sovereignty in in Psalm 33 is over the kings and queens. Our last election was a miracle election. I I don't know what you think about it, but it was was an amazing outcome, right? Um, God works out his sovereignty over kings and queens and governments and nations, and even over us as individuals. Um, Verse 15 is very interesting. You can see it there on on your uh, handouts or on the screen. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all of their works. This is just an amazing concept that God fashions our hearts individually. What does fashion mean? Well, he forms it. He makes it. He frames it like a potter forming a pot. He's squeezing it into, into shape. Now, Math- Matthew Henry, the, the great commentator, said, and f- forgive me the, the slightly old English, their hearts, as well as their times, are all in his hand. He fashions their hearts. He made them at first, formed the spirit of each man within him. The artist that made the clock can account for the motions of every will. God still moulds the hearts of men, turns them as the rivers of water, which way soever he pleases, to serve his own purposes, darkens or enlightens men's understandings, stiffens or bows their wills according as he is pleased to make use of them so the hearts of men and their dispositions however varying from each other and seeming to contradict one another are yet all overruled to serve the divine purpose now once again we get into the deep area of god's sovereignty and so i just had this really dumb analogy this afternoon because when i think about god's will and he fashions my heart and He. And so, does that mean that he's like he's the puppet master? He, we're just all puppets in his, in his play, and he, he's just doing this thing, controlling us. And as some of the, the apostles ask, well, hang on, is it fair then that God judges us? If he is just um, doing with us as he pleases, is it fair that he then judges us? But I had this really stupid metaphor, and some of the younger audience here will know it. The movie ella enchanted with anne hathaway right there's this scene where she falls under this spell right and what did they have to say what do they have to do they had to command her or something and she would have to do it ah you guys come on young people Throw it out at me. But what had they? Are they? To tell her to do something.
1: She you do it.
0: Right, and because she was under this spell, they just had to tell her to do it. And they, and some of the naughty people worked out that she was subject to them, and they would just have to say this, and she would have to do it. Spell
1: of obedience.
0: The spell of obedience. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, you know she's being ridiculous, and she, you know she's not acting in character. And you know she's not doing what she would normally want to do. There's this very clear picture that she is under control of someone else. But think of the way our lives work and, our, and God's sovereignty works in this world. Are any of us working in that jerky kind of a way? I'm doing my own will one second, and then the next second I'm, I'm whipped out of it and I'm doing something completely different. No, that's not the way it works. God's sovereignty is exerted in such an interesting and mind-boggling way. It's completely what we want, (laughs) right? The nations that went to war against Israel wanted Israel dead and wiped off the map. They wanted their territory. God said, I'm going to allow you to do that to discipline my people, those kings of persia and assyria weren't doing something that was out of their character they were building an empire and so it is i think with us and so it is with the way god works his sovereignty he's not moving people completely against their will he's actually just going that's what you want and i'm going to i'm going to encourage you in the same direction um to bring about my purposes now god can and does change hearts and minds. Those are moments of conviction where we change, but it's we're not seeing people like in the movie, are we? Going, I'm not under control, I'm just doing something according to some foreign power that's over me. Everyone is going about living their lives almost exactly the way they want to live them, and God says, I am bringing about my sovereign plan through all of you. And it's it's mind-blowing how he actually does it. And it's the same reason why we can't sit back and blame God for well how can you judge me because it's what we wanted anyway. It's what we wanted anyway. At the end of the psalm we see verse 21 that for our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name and I just wanted to bring out a simple teaching in that and that is that trust leads to rejoicing not the other way around you know rejoicing doesn't necessarily lead to trust but trust leads to rejoicing Why? Because we trust in a God that's good and we trust in a God that is going to bring about things for our benefit and for his glory. Now, it stands to reason, therefore, doesn't it, that if God is sovereign over all things and his plans for us are good, it stands to reason that we would trust him. And once again, it's not trusting in the, the universe or... With some forces of karma, it's trusting in the God who has revealed his character in his word to us, who loves us incredibly. So Proverbs 3, we, we know it all well, We've, we probably memorized this one early as, as kids in the church, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So there's this sense in which we just trust in God. We have the love of God in our hearts. We, we know He wants for our best, and therefore we can lean on Him and not on ourselves. Now, I've often joked that I've been having a midlife crisis since about the age of fifteen. Um, I started very early, yeah. and um. And really what that was is that depression started about the age of 15, right? So I was in crisis, it just wasn't midlife. But now I'm 51, I actually am in midlife crisis, so I've finally moved into what I've been planning for all of these years and um, I've been perfecting all of this time. Um, but the, the question comes, you know, the seasons of life change. Your kids grow up, they're, you know, becoming independent and... and, and uh, you know you the season just changes and you get to a stage where you go okay well what am i going to do with my life and part of that is really good thinking like okay new season starts lord what do you want me to do um how would how do we go forward from here do you want it to be a continuation of the last 50 years or do you want it to be different in some way and then it's good to give god command over all of that and ask those questions and sometimes when the answers don't come we start saying oh, okay well what am I going to do about it well you know the the sports car starts looking good and the um, and maybe I need a bigger house and maybe I need uh, to change jobs and you know and and people do stupid things in midlife crisis too right they do dangerous things or they put their relationships at jeopardy by having affairs and and we can do dopey things but the but the question as a Christian is what am I going to do with my life? And and for me, I was stewing over these things. Um, well, what would make me happy was the kind of thought that came to my mind. And, you know, if I pick up these hobbies or if I... What is going to make me happy? And, and you know what happened. Verse uh, Luke 9 popped straight into my head. Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There was this sense in which I was on the precipice of saying, I'm just going to full on explore what will make me happy in life. You know, I'm just going to, you know, it's a new season. Let's just check it all out. What, is, what does God want? And it was just like saying, okay. Jesus is just saying you can go after all that. It's not going to lead to your happiness. In fact, you're going to go back into captivity if you just want to know what's going to try to make you happy because you're just going to blow all your money on stupid toys um, and, and experiences and stuff like that and it's actually just going to not satisfy you in the end anyway. Follow me because I want to give you abundance of life. If you lose your life for me, You'll save it. So there, there comes a letting go of my own will and yielding to his will. And once again, if he loves me, if, if he loves me, if he died for me, if he wants to save me, why wouldn't I trust him? You know, we're, we're not asked to trust in a, uh, in a benevolent... <laughs> I just said that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> dictator. I'm not even going to try to say it again. Um, Okay. We're asked to trust in the God that loves us and who laid down his life for us. He showed us how much he loves us. So we're going to finish on Philippians 4 4 to 7. I'll I'll read it to you. And I want you to uh, answer in the very first verse in response to this verse how. So the question is how. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So we're thinking about how. Then we go on. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. I well, we won't ask for hands to go up if we are anxious. But in everything by prayer and supplication, it gets back to Timothy, the verses in Timothy again. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the end of the verses there is very encouraging for us who suffer with depression. But rejoicing. How are we to rejoice? Or why would we? Or if the start of this is rejoicing in God always, well, why? How? How do we do that? Does rejoicing just spring out of nowhere? Where does it come from?
1: Remembering the good things he's done.
0: Right, remembering the good things he's done. Yeah. Thinking about those things. Meditating upon those things. That Psalm 33, I hope you get to read it later. Meditating upon his marvellous works, what he's done in history, what he's done in our world. on On the good things of God. So we, we rejoice in the Lord as a response to to those things, to his character once again. But then it goes on about being anxious for nothing. How? Well, the same as the Timothy passage. We hand it all over to God. Make your requests known to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, so that means the peace of God comes into our lives despite all of our circumstances, right? All of our circumstances can be saying panic you've lost your job you've lost your home you've lost your family think about job he lost everything why aren't i panicking because i have this strange peace that god has a good plan for me and he's bringing about that good plan in my life and i don't even understand how he's doing it but i know he's going to do it so we can have this peace and then what does that peace do this is really important for the Christian and for the, for the person who has difficulties with, with mental illness what does that do it guards our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ once again it's a battle for our heart and our mind battle for our soul and, it, and when we rejoice and when we hand over our issues to God he guards us so the basis of prayer, of handing that all over to God, is trust, okay? We trust God because he is good and his character is good and He stated his good plans towards us. He delights to bless us. So I hope that you've seen good cause not to lose heart. I hope that you've seen in this study... The purpose of God saving you, the purpose of, as we know from John 3.16, of sending his son into the world, his motivation was love. His motivation that you would be saved is all about his loving character and that he wants you to know you are loved. It's his primary purpose, that you would be loved. That's an amazing beginning and end in some ways to the story he just wants you to know that you're loved and that will bring him glory because if you know you're loved well that's a fantastic thing isn't it we love being loved right that's a that's a comforting thing it's a it's a thing that gives us peace when it is God himself who loves us it's an amazing thing and it gives us that comfort and peace. And it's the Holy Spirit Himself indwelling in us. So in some of those passages it talks about the intimacy that God desires with us. He actually wants to live with us. And the Holy Spirit Himself gives us comfort and peace. So you can know the beginning of this study was in the Jeremiah twenty nine and Romans eight twenty eight that God has good plans for you. He is working those plans out through his sovereign will. The bad things that have happened in your life and the bad things that are happening now and the bad things that will happen in the future. If you are a child of God, he is going to make good on everything for you. He loves you so much. He's doing it for your benefit and his glory and he is going to redeem everything. And even if that means that the day you die and you go to be in glory, he just blows your mind with how good he's been, then that is still a good thing. But he will inform us in the meantime as we grow in, um, in our relationship with him. Now, as he said, I desire you to be full, filled with the fullness of God. When we are filled with God, our life... Bears fruit everywhere our life just expands sort of in every direction it it expands towards people in love in acts of kindness in relationships, in service in, in all sorts of ways and so that's where we're going to go next week so now that we're established and rooted in love next week we're going to look at what our acts of service might be even if we struggle with depression so let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much and we just want to, um, we want to spend time just dwelling on your love rather than moving on and thinking, what next? Where do I go from here? Lord, help us just to rest in the simplicity of the abundance of your love for us. We thank you for Jesus who saved us by dying for us. We thank you that it was his choice We thank you that because of his sacrifice, we are made right with you. And Lord, by faith, we accept his death on our behalf. And by faith, we accept the new life that you've given us. Father, thank you for your amazing loving kindness that has just been poured out upon us. Thank you for your goodness that's in this world that we can see around us. Thank you that your own creation just testifies to your majesty, to your creative power, to your brilliance. Lord, we just uh, want to plumb the depths of your love for us, the height, the width, the depth. And uh, we thank you that your your love is so great that we can spend all of the, the days of our life working that out. Lord, we just want to cherish you and we want to cherish your love in Jesus' name. Amen.